Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. Happy Earth Day if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out. Even if you're not, happy Earth Day. Earth Day should be every day. We always say it and I'm here to say it today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hanging out with me a little bit. I'm thrilled to share today's episode because I feel like it is timely, it is valuable, it is very Earth Day every day. We are joined today by Professor Kimberly Nicholas. Dr. Nicholas is a sustainability scientist at Lund University in Sweden. She has published over 55 articles on climate and sustainability in leading peer-reviewed journals, and she writes for publications such as Elle, The Guardian, Scientific American, and New Scientist. She is the author of Under the Sky We Make, How to Be a Human in a Warming World, and a monthly newsletter, We Can Fix It. I have followed Kim's work online for a very long time now, And I think the emotional element of her work is so special and valuable. Today, we're not necessarily talking about climate anxiety, though I do have quite a few episodes on that. I can link a few episodes in the show notes if you want to hear more about eco-anxiety specifically and tips from experts in the field. Kim and I today do talk a little bit about anxiety and fear in the climate space, but this conversation is one of hope, I would say. This is a very positive conversation about coping and growing and really adapting, mitigating your life in this world of climate change and in the face of a climate crisis. How do you maintain that positivity? How do you maintain your humanness in this warming world, if we may really take the tagline of under the sky we make to heart? Dr. Nicholas gives lectures and moderates about 75 international meetings and organizations each year across public policy, civil society, arts and culture, the wine industry, foundations, and academia. Her work has been featured by outlets including the BBC, the New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, NPR, Vox, USA Today. She really has an incredible wide range and this incredible ability to connect with people in different sectors and industries to discuss this positivity and space for emotion in the climate space. She was born and raised on her family's vineyard in Sonoma, California, And she studied the effect of climate change on the California wine industry for her PhD at Stanford University's Interdisciplinary Program in Environment and Resources. Kim is brilliant, and she also has this really incredible ability to connect with people. I feel like this is such a podcaster compliment to give, but something else I loved about our conversation 
was that Kim has this really beautiful cadence to her voice. It made me feel like listening to her, she had such positivity and warmth in all of the suggestions that she shared and all of the information that she shared. It made the science feel really personal. It made the conversation feel really personal and easy to relate to. And I think that y'all will really, really enjoy it as well and get a lot out of it, especially on Earth Day. We're keeping the hope, we're keeping that positivity, and we're making space for ourselves and our full personalities in this climate space. If you're new around here, do not forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and you can also follow along on Spotify. You can write and review the show wherever you are. You can share it in the group chat, share it with your family. Share it on your Instagram story and tag me at EcoChicPodcast. All of my links are always in the show notes. So if you want to connect on social, on Insta, on TikTok, on wherever you like to connect, I want to meet you. Let's jump into our conversation with Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, how to be human in a warming world. Enjoy. Kim, welcome to the show. Welcome to EcoChic. How are you today? Thank you, Laura. Good to be here. I'm doing all right. I have a slight cold, non-COVID cold, so hopefully I don't sound too stuffy. I'm excited to have you here. I want to first set the scene a little bit and hear a little bit about how you went from a purely climate science academic perspective in the space to incorporating more of this emotional aspect into your work. What was that transition like for you? By necessity and from my own personal experience, I guess. I mean, I first started studying climate change in 1996 as an undergraduate in college. I had the chance to be a research assistant. And then I was hiking around in the mountains and looking at how plants were moving uphill because of warming, trying to create the niche or follow their niche where they could still thrive as that niche moved upward up the mountains of California. So then it seemed like Climate change was something that could be observed already, you know, decades ago and was happening, but it was still more distant. It hadn't really come so close to home. And I think many people now have really experienced the impacts of the climate crisis firsthand. I mean, probably for me, the strongest moment of emotion has been when my parents and then my sister and her family were evacuated from a wildfire that hit my hometown of Sonoma in 2017. And thankfully they were safe, but it was absolutely terrifying. And we know that those fires in the Western US and North America have gotten worse and lasted longer. And the season has expanded because of human caused climate change. So I think, you know, when you're really fearing for the safety of your loved one's lives, it really brings it close to home. Absolutely. I could see how that personal experience makes it very real for a lot of people. And I find that in my perspective in the more emotional climate space, a lot of folks find that climate change isn't a concern to them, quote unquote, or a priority to them because there's this sense of distance that it's not happening to you. It's not happening in your hometown. It's a problem for the polar bears. And we are seeing more and more that that's just simply not the case. So that reckoning of just connecting news events and connecting extreme weather events to climate change, I feel like is also a really stark mental transition for a lot of folks. Yeah, absolutely. The data back you up at last summer, some research showed that the majority of Americans had experienced or were experiencing climate related extremes from people burning fossil fuels and causing climate warming. So it really has come close to home now for everybody. And I think this was a big light bulb moment for me in around 2017, starting to talk and write more personally about climate change because of a study we published and because of this experience with my family and the wildfires, it felt like 
that gap was no longer there. I didn't have the luxury of studying climate change only academically, only through graphs and figures and you know dates that seemed far off. I mean, I can remember being in, in grad school and that was in 2005 and we were running models and making projections that agriculture in California was gonna be out in this new climate space that it had never experienced before by 2020. Okay, when that date was 15 years in the future, it sounded really abstract. And of course, now that date is in the past and we are living in this new climate that is something that humans haven't experienced before, that systems aren't adapted to, that we didn't build our cities and farms and, and infrastructure for. So I think it made it really clear that I want to be thinking and talking about climate change as something that is happening to us and something that we can do something about, that we can see where the climate affects us in our daily lives, that it's not just this far away problem for future generations or for somebody else. Do you find yourself in spaces where you feel called to make those connections for folks? Do you ever have people reaching out to you and say, my mother or my brother or someone in my life just isn't convinced, even though X, Y, and Z is happening? How do you make those connections for people? How do you draw the line between climate change and their own day-to-day -day lives today in the year 2022? For me, those are actually two different questions. I think starting from shared values and experiences is what works to connect to people and listening more than talking or lecturing is what works to make people feel safe and heard and seen and understood. And from that point of view, people are much more willing to engage and building trusting relationships is, you know, how you sort of um, have a potential to change hearts and minds or to have conversations that over time can lead up to something. But I also think that, I mean, the more than 70% of Americans are concerned or alarmed about climate change already. And that's the group that I focus on and, and try to reach because that's the group who's really hungry for information, who wants to know how they can help, um, who doesn't need to be convinced or argue about the fact that humans are warming the climate. And I actually don't spend any time or I don't try to convince people who aren't in that group because that group is already sufficient to make the changes that we need and, and mobilizing them is really what's going to work in time. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I feel like for a lot of folks, we forget that the vast majority of people accept climate change and we are concerned with that, whatever it is, seven or 8% of the population, maybe even smaller than that, that are climate deniers. And that's not really where we need to be focusing our time and energy, given that it's a loud minority. So just recognizing that the vast majority of people are on the same page and we are all working towards solutions in the best way that we believe is really comforting. I agree. It is. And I know that it's disturbing, especially if it's a loved one, right? If it's a, a close friend or family member who is in that, as you said, it's a small group, less than 10% in the U.S. who aren't aware or who deny the fact of human-caused climate warming. So I only engage with folks like that when they're around my <laughs> dinner table at Thanksgiving or I have like an important personal relationship with them that I want to prioritize and maintain. Um, and then it's not about trying to argue or present facts or graphs or, or change beliefs, because then it really is about beliefs and you don't have a shared set of facts, which is really difficult and destabilizing. But I mean, definitely my, my work is really focused on this strong majority group that is already concerned or alarmed and wants to be more engaged. I would believe 
that a lot of the folks approaching you talking about their emotions in the climate crisis are likely discussing feelings of fear or climate anxiety and these kind of doom and gloom moments. We see a lot of really stark headlines these days. We are really concerned about our homes during wildfire season, like you mentioned earlier, these extreme events and how they're impacting us. And I have to imagine that that feeling of fear and kind of being burdened with the impact of other people's fear must stress you out quite a bit. How do you deal with being the go-to person when it comes to emotions in the climate space? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I really appreciate the insight behind that question. My, my PhD was on how climate change is affecting the wine industry of California. So I looked at, I peeled thousands of grapes and analyzed their skin for their chemical content. And I also looked at the human side and interviewed farmers and growers, how they're adapting and what the limits adaptation are. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have that kind of training. And there are many folks who are professionals in that space. I think um, climate-informed therapy and psychology has really gained a lot of ground in recent years. And there's a bunch of both individual therapists and alliances that are doing really great work. The Good Grief Network, for example, and many others. Um, Brit, Dr. Britt Ray has a new book coming out, and she has a, a background in, in that. But I guess it is a conversation that climate experts are having more and more that we feel like, how do we thread this needle of being honest? and giving bad news because there is a lot of bad news in the climate crisis feels like screaming into the wind for as long as I've been in this game, which is now getting into the middle of its second, almost third decade. And that's really tough. And I think it's also tough for people to cope emotionally ourselves. I mean, I write in Under the Sky We Make, I write about colleagues saying matter of factly, half of the wildlife in Africa has died on my watch. Many of us got into this work because we love nature, we love ecosystems, we love these special places and the people who live there and the ways that people and nature intertwine and connect. And just seeing, I mean, it feels like sometimes our job is documenting the death and demise of the people and places and things that we love. And that is really tough. So I think I've really tried hard to find good ways of coping with that and building community, finding meaning and purpose in doing the work that's necessary and having the energy to get out of bed in the morning, knowing that many others are doing the same. And I think for me, it's really been this um, process of not trying to avoid all the climate feels, but basically going through, you know, what I call the five stages of radical climate acceptance from ignorance to purpose by way of all the feels. So, I mean, I think facing and sitting with these feelings, which can be really big of grief and anger, but also community and creativity and shared purpose can be really powerful in guiding what we do. And I think embracing that, it gives us actually a lot of strength. Can you walk me through the five stages of climate acceptance? Sure. So stage one is ignorance. We all start out not knowing and we have to learn somehow from books or parents or teachers or media. Okay, climate change is happening. You know, it's it's warming. It's us. We're sure it's bad. We can fix it. Those are the basic climate facts. So we have to find those somehow. Then we get to avoidance, second stage. And I spent quite a long time there myself because, for example, it took me a long time to align my own lifestyle with my own values and even research. And the toughest thing for me was facing the fact that 
frequent flying is just not compatible with a stable climate. So I'm a, a former frequent flyer. In 2010, I took 15 round trip flights. And it wasn't until I was at a climate conference where I had flown there and my good friend Charlie had taken the train and we had a 12 hour day of you know depressing PowerPoints of how bad the climate crisis is and would continue to be. And I kind of looked around and thought, I feel like I'm in a room of doctors telling our patients to stop smoking and we're puffing on cigarettes. How can we influence this world in the way that we know we need to and that our data say is necessary if we're not actually walking the talk? So I had a long conversation with Charlie and was able to kind of face my avoidance or it kind of became more possible to face uncomfortable truths, then avoid them and decided to follow his lead and stop flying within Europe where I live. So that ended up leading me on a journey where I've reduced my flying about 95%. Quick break that I am on my wellness game lately. I've been sharing a lot on the podcast. I've been sharing a lot on social, especially living a plant-based lifestyle. I want to make sure that I'm taking care of my body as best I can. Care of helps you keep an eco-friendly mindset throughout your health and wellness journey while also making taking your vitamins super easy and convenient. I've always heard good things about Care of, but I was really excited to try them because I learned about their compostable packaging. Care of's personal packs are made from plant-based compostable film that includes wood pulp and fermented blend of corn, cassava root, and sugarcane, so you can feel good about the impact your vitamins are having not only on your health, but also on the planet. I just mentioned the personalized packs, and I feel like this is the best part about Care of supplements. I know I don't want to be taking a whole bunch of vitamins that I don't necessarily need, and I want to make sure that they make sense for my lifestyle. So with Care of, you can take a short, in-depth quiz about your health goals and lifestyle and get personally tailored recommendations based off your answers. You can stick with what Care of recommends or change up your pack at any time. Again, being plant-based, it is really important to me to make sure I get things like B12 and then also really important that if I have the option for a vegan supplement, I take it. So for example, one of the supplements I take in my little Care of packs is a vegan collagen supplement. This one specifically that I'm taking supports my joint health because that was something that I was looking to add to my wellness routine. Care Of's products are made from good-for-you, clean ingredients that are backed by the latest science and research so you can feel good about what you're putting into your body. For 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter code ECOCHIC50. Again, that's TakeCareOf.com with code ECOCHIC50 for 50% off your first Care Of order. Another brand I love having in my health and wellness routine is Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt and no sugar. I've talked pretty openly about my life as a ski girl this year. I'm a hiker. I'm a really active person during the week. And especially when I'm doing outdoor high intensity activities, it is so easy to just forget to drink water or just be dehydrated no matter how much I'm drinking. Element is a really cool, really tasty solution for that kind of lifestyle. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 600 milligrams of magnesium. All of that with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients. Of course, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following keto, low-carb, or paleo diets. Even if you don't consider yourself a high-performance athlete, electrolyte deficiency and imbalances can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, weakness. We should all be aware of our hydration. We should all be supporting our electrolyte intake however we can. When you sweat, the primary electrolyte lost is sodium. You can actually lose up to seven grams per day. When I read that, I was floored. 
When sodium isn't replaced, it's really common to experience those symptoms I just talked about, like muscle cramps and fatigue. Amongst my friends, I've kind of acquired this unintentional reputation of being a stickler for electrolytes and hydration. I bring these element packets anywhere I am doing some sort of outdoorsy intensive activity. If I'm going skiing with my girlfriends, I make sure to bring an element packet for every person riding in my car because I'm just going to hound us about making sure we're hydrated enough. Last weekend, I was camping with a whole bunch of friends in Utah, and it was the first camping trip of the summer. I was really excited. We are hiking in the desert. We are definitely not getting enough water during the day. We are not eating the best, not getting the nutrition that we need when we're doing these high-intensity activities. And I made sure to bring a whole box of element packets for everyone that was around, made everyone drink one every single day. Hydration is important. I'm not going to play around with it. And if you need an electrolyte stickler friend in your life, I will be that for you. I'm telling you, you got to stay on top of yourself this summer. Element is so sure that you will love their product and come back for more. They're offering you a free Element sample pack. That's eight single serving packets for free. You can just cover the cost of shipping, which is $5 for U.S. customers. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash eco chic. This deal is not available on the regular website. You must go to drinklmnt.com slash eco chic. Element offers a no questions asked refund. It's totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you can share it with a salty friend and they'll give you your money back. No questions asked. You truly have nothing to lose. Links and codes are always in the show notes. Now back to the show. I think once you get through avoidance, what a lot of people find as a third stage is actually doom. So for people who are coming into this totally fresh and kind of, you know, one day a certain headline or conversation or experience breaks through and they start Googling, that is often the road to a dark tunnel of doom. And I often hear from those folks who have just like, don't see any way out, basically, who only hear the bad news and don't get the good news that we do have the solutions we need to the climate crisis. We know what needs to be done. We have the technology in hand. There are good things happening already, but we need more people putting them into practice and making them happen where you are and in your life and in your world. So I think the way through doom is all the feels. That's stage four. So giving space and voice and time to grief and anger and injustice and also community and finding ways to then build your community and support each other to get to the fifth stage, which is purpose. And basically your climate purpose is where you have aligned your values and actions, which feels really good. And that is where you can contribute your climate superpowers, which are unique to you of what is it that you're good at and enjoy doing and think is fun and can sustain doing that the world needs that is actually helping you serve the climate crisis. And I think that's where a lot of, more of us need to get to. And I think when we're in that space, it, it feels really positive. Wow. I have two immediate thoughts that I'd like to share with you. I feel like stage two avoidance is one that I assume a lot of people find themselves reflected in because you've gotten to this point where you understand that climate change is happening but you also see that your own lifestyle doesn't reflect those values or what you want to see out of the climate crisis. So that's really difficult because that's lifestyle change. Lifestyle change is difficult. It's so individual. We hear a lot sometimes around uh, lifestyle change isn't going to work. It's about policy and the these more systematic change we need beyond simply lifestyle change. 
But unless you get to the point where you're willing to change your lifestyle, willing to align your actions with your values, it's really difficult to move on through those stages, clearly, of climate acceptance. And it's really difficult to advocate for those things in these larger systems that you operate within. So avoidance to me sounds like a very easy place to get stuck. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. And I think you're absolutely right that we need to create pathways out of avoidance. So we need to kind of make it possible for people to face some difficult truths and to realize, okay, some things that I might have or enjoy now are not going to work on a planet where we actually stop catastrophic climate change. And for me, that was frequent flying. For me, that was actually facing the fact that there actually are no climate-friendly flights. It's not possible with current technology. That's one of the few areas that we actually don't have technical solutions at hand. We know how to make clean energy. We know how to make clean heat. And we can meet most of our other needs in fossil-free ways right now with existing tech, but uh, aviation is not one of those. So that took some doing to confront. But I, I think you also raise another important point that we don't need perfection. I think something that stops people in the other direction is feeling like I'm not doing enough myself personally. So then I can't do anything else at all until, you know, whatever your own standard of perfection might be. And what I find and what research shows as well is that a lot of times people get really hung up on pretty small things that actually don't matter that much for the climate and feel like, oh, I can't, you know, be a good climate citizen or advocate for these policies or speak out on this issue until I stop using throwaway coffee cups or something like that. <laughs> and, and I mean, we just have to put it in perspective. The I really focus on high impact climate actions and identifying across a range of roles, some of which are lifestyle and our own consumption, but also as citizens, as role models at work, as investors, the way that we show up in a lot of different spaces, we know what the high impact actions are there and they actually serve to reinforce each other. And basically to stop climate change, we need to both reduce overconsumption from the small group of people who are consuming more than our fair share and make the system change. We have to do both those things. It's not going to work to only have top-down policy change to get to where we need to fast enough with the time that we have left. Yeah, I completely agree. I really resonate with that statement. And I also feel like that's an interesting place to link to this last stage of climate acceptance that you mentioned of not just fully accepting climate change, but really tapping into your own values and passions and your community groups to talk about climate change with folks, to innovate in the space, to reach more people, to talk a little bit more with folks that are perhaps stuck in that avoidance stage or in the doom stage, which is really unfortunate. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about innovation in the space or perhaps even untapped niches that you see when we talk about climate change. Who are the groups that we're not reaching? Is there anyone that you really look up to as doing a great job of reaching untapped groups with new passions? What does innovation in climate emotion, I suppose, really look like? Well, I think you're reaching a really important and underserved group, which is women, <laughs> because we know that traditionally this has been a very male dominated space and we need to include everybody to make a fast and fair transition to a fossil free world. That certainly includes women. And I think building spaces where I think that this is not directly linked with gender, but it's 
pretty correlated that a lot of the work so far has been really technically focused and we absolutely need tech and innovation and engineering and all the carbon-free hardware and stuff that we have to build to replace fossil energy. But that work has largely been done. So actually getting the, the changes we need in practice at the rate we need, that's about building communities, building consensus, having people engaged and feel like they're a part of things. Basically to have political will, what you need is fairness and legitimacy. And fairness means that nothing about us without us, that you're actually involving the groups who are affected and bringing them into conversations. And especially for groups who have been the most marginalized historically, it's super important to involve and engage throughout and you know be at the table from the beginning and setting the agenda, not just this kind of passive consultation, but actually really working together from the start. So I think a lot of the innovation that's needed is more on the social and community side. And a lot of that is bottom up. I mean, talking about policy, we know that there are about 20 countries that have actually been reducing their greenhouse gas emissions, but there are more than 300 cities who have been doing that. So there's you know an order of magnitude more innovation that's happening at a more local scale. And I think getting people involved at their local scale where you actually can make a really big difference is absolutely key because actually every city and every town, as well as every country and every sector has to get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. And we have to unlock all the pieces that will make that possible. So that really starts where people are. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like talking about getting involved locally in politics is a really intimidating thing for a lot of folks. Before my current role, I worked in local government, and I think that one of the most pleasantly surprising things that I learned from that role is the involvement of quite niche community groups. There are groups of people that get together just to reach out about banning lawnmowers. I'm trying to think of something off the top of my head or like really passionate about no more street trees because they've ruined the sidewalks in 20 years. It sounds a little silly to talk about it at such a surface level. But the point is that there are these groups of folks that are really deeply passionate about specific issues in your local community, whether it's a big city or a small town. And there are people that align with your hobbies and passions and values. Sometimes it's simply community groups that are really passionate about filling community fridges or even starting community fridges in a neighborhood to offer free food options. And there are so many ways to get involved in a local community that I think people really underestimate or they feel like it's just not for them. They're just not the kind of person to participate in a community group. And there is actually so much space for these people and getting over that barrier of like, it's just not for me is wildly powerful for a lot of folks. Absolutely. I, that's also my experience. And I agree that we need to make everyone feel welcome. And I think everyone needs to feel like, okay, I have something unique to offer. Where can I give that gift to serve climate action. You know, you talked about filling community fridges, people who love to cook or who love to garden and grow food or to rescue food, to say prevent food waste. I mean, there's so much just really practical on the ground work to be done there that does a lot of good. Quick break, I wanna talk to you about Ana Luisa Jewelry. Ana Luisa Jewelry is made for you and made with the planet in mind. They are 100% carbon and water neutral, but also really, really pretty. They have these versatile designs that are really easy to mix and match and wear every day. 
I am always wearing layered necklaces. That's a look that I really love. And I feel like shopping on Ana Luisa for them is really easy because you can shop by chain length. Ana Luisa, A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, has timeless jewelry for any occasion. A cute ring to show off at the grocery store, a dainty bracelet for when you're picking up your iced coffee, luxurious necklaces that make your friends think that you spent a lot of money on them. But dig this, the best part of Ana Luisa is that jewelry starts at $39. These prices are incredible. With our code ECOCHIC, you can get 10% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. I feel like I am always telling y'all about this little open heart necklace from Ana Luisa that I love. I am wearing it in every TikTok, every Reels, every single day. I love to layer this necklace or wear it on its own. Let me also turn you on to their bracelets. For a long time, I thought I wasn't a bracelet girl, and I think it was actually a fear of not being able to put them on myself, which sounds really silly now that I'm saying it, but there was this really cute little flower chain bracelet on Ana Luisa that I loved, and I was like, you know what, go for it, live a little, become a bracelet girl, and there's something about the chains and the little openings on Ana Luisa jewelry, both on necklaces and on bracelets, that make it surprisingly simple to put all of this on yourself. And I know I'm saying this and it may sound a little silly to someone out there, but if you too are nervous about becoming a bracelet girl, Ana Luisa will let you be a bracelet girl. This is your time. I feel like it's also a great place to look for gifts, especially we have Mother's Day coming up. If you have a birthday or a graduation that you want to give someone in your life something that they can really cherish and use a lot, I feel like Ana Luisa is a great place to look. Again, really versatile and easy to mix and match. Plus, they have a gift guide on their website along with the bestsellers page. Really easy, great destinations to browse their most gifted options. So while you're getting yourself a new necklace, you can throw in one for your sister. Why not? I want to get my sister one of those little flower chain bracelets that I was just telling y'all about. So it's like a friendship bracelet. You can go ahead and treat yourself and your loved ones using my code ECOCHIC to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them. I think they're a great brand. They make really beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So check out shop.analuisa.com slash ecochic, code ecochic. Always in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Both from a climate perspective, reducing emissions, but also from a community perspective, which is super important. I mean, one of the things that actually enables climate action and a fast and fair transition is trust and levels of trust among neighbors and among our fellow citizens. And we know that a lot of trends, of course, the pandemic where, you know, for health reasons, people, the recommendations have been to isolate and that's been necessary, but also difficult. And for lots of other reasons having to do with the social media and, and the political landscape, people are more isolated and less trusting now. And we have weaker community bonds. And that's a big problem, not just for the climate, but for our happiness and well-being and health and also for our preparation. I mean, we know from research that in the case of emergencies like a wildfire or another climate-related disaster, it's your neighbors who will save your life. I mean, you really depend on the people who are physically close by and around you. And something as simple as knowing your neighbor's name as dropping off, you know, some cookies or borrowing some sugar or, you know, we're exchanging seedlings because I'm always way too optimistic and planting far too many tomatoes and, you know, giving those to my neighbors is actually a really important part of building the kind of world that I want to live in and that, you know, we need to make happen. And I think there's so much joy in that also. And I think there's so much opportunity and, and people I agree don't really realize, oh, wait a minute, this is a really important climate action, you know, making it safe for my 
kid to walk or bike to school is a really big deal for the climate or, you know, getting streets to be safer and less cities, less focused on cars is a huge climate action. We just published a study uh, today, actually, on 12 effective ways to reduce cars in cities that have worked, that we have the data saying, look, this has already happened. This is what cities are doing and this is what works. So now we need more cities to, to follow those measures. And then we need people advocating for those measures in cities. And that can that's groups of people getting together over a kitchen table or around a neighborhood. I mean, those are things that start small that really have a big impact. I love that. I love that. I think that there's something so heartwarming about thinking about your neighbors and uh, really finding yourself in your local community, especially my own selfish perspective on this. As a young person, I've I've moved around a lot. I've lived in different cities and I'm finally at a point in my life where I feel a lot more settled and getting to know a community is really special for me. I am very, very lucky to live in a walkable neighborhood and just being able to, again, get to know my neighbors, get to know the bakery that I like to buy my sourdough from. Like those small things really do add up into a sense of place and a sense of purpose. And it makes me so much more invested in my neighborhood and contributing to it and making it as great as I can. Even just taking that one step further, I think thinking about community as a big piece of this climate action puzzle makes it a lot less far off. Again, this this concept of distance is really watered down when you realize that you care about your place, when you care about your community, when you are deeply invested and laying down roots in a space. It's like, this is my home and this is where I want to make sure climate action is seen. Yeah, I love that. Kim Cobb is a a friend and colleague. And I love how she talks about thinking about the world she wants to live in in 2050 and then making that world happen today. So what is it that we need? I mean, so she talks about starting to bike to work uh, in Atlanta, which is not super bike friendly. It took some time, but now she's a huge advocate and she loves it. And actually trying these things and then realizing, you know, what works or what doesn't, what actually do I enjoy or gives me more time and energy than I would have thought? And what are the barriers in my way and what's stopping other people and how can I help remove those barriers and and work with my community to remove those barriers? And that is really concrete and practical, like how climate action can unfold on the ground. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that anecdote. I'm a big fan of Kim Cobb on Twitter. Atlanta, where I worked in local government, that was one of my big concerns. It was a lot of folks advocating for bike lanes because I'm not a biker. It had never occurred to me that there just wasn't enough bike lanes in the area that I was serving. So finding those folks and tapping into that community was really powerful for me as an individual or as a public servant, I suppose, to really support members of my community that I cared about, but I wasn't necessarily aligned with their passions. That doesn't mean that it's any less important than my own passions. And again, that's a sense of place. That's finding community. That's getting to know your neighbors and your local government. And it's it's really quite powerful. I would love to switch gears a little. I would love to talk to you a little bit about actionable steps in the climate crisis. I feel like you do such a great job around advocating for these solutions that already exist. We've talked a lot about what folks can do on the ground once they get to that point of climate acceptance. But if there is one takeaway, someone who already cares about climate change and thinks they're doing a great job, but wants to do a little bit better, how would you suggest that person move forward? Yes, I think it's about finding your climate superpower. So we've identified these five roles, which are lifestyle as a citizen at work or school, 
as a role model, and as an investor. And basically, we need all of those. So pick your favorite. You can start wherever you want. Um, I think in general, people often do start at home with their own personal choices, and that's a great place to start, especially if you're in the group that is in the top 10% of emitters globally. And that means if you earn over $38,000 a year or more, you are in that group, uh, as am I. So we are the group that actually needs to look at our lifestyle consumption. And our research has shown that the biggest actions you can take there to quickly reduce your emissions are to go car, flight, and meat free. So if you can go all the way, that's great. First, look at flights. That's the biggest, if you fly, that's the biggest part of your carbon footprint. So the most good you can do the quickest is to reduce that. Then driving for most Americans, that's the biggest footprint. And so as much driving as you can reduce as possible, if you can't go car free, look for ways to cut back and eating a healthy and sustainable diet, which is primarily plant-based is also the biggest win for nature. That's the biggest biodiversity saver as well as a big climate saver. So that's the lifestyle side. The investment side is about stopping giving our money to banks and investors that are continuing to finance expansion and production of fossil fuels. We know that that is throwing money down the drain because we have to stop producing and consuming fossil fuels as fast as possible. So switching to for example, a local credit union, divesting your pension and encouraging your institution like work or school to divest. Those are really high impact. As a role model, it's listening to podcasts like these and sharing them with friends and having these kinds of conversations with friends and trying to you know, model, walk the talk. Social media, I think is a big one there for many of us to think about. I think a lot about how oftentimes a picture of a tropical beach uh, with an umbrella drink gets a lot of likes. And I wish that that got a lot of like CO2 uh, labeling instead, because I think we don't want to be glorifying high carbon consumption. We need to think about, you know, how do we have a good life and adventure and friends and delicious food and all the things we enjoy without producing a lot of carbon. So basically modeling those ways of living. Citizen action is super important. We've talked a lot about that. And I think there's a lot of ways to get involved. We know voting is the top climate action there. And so looking at the climate score for your representatives, helping to elect tough climate champions and, and replace people with bad climate scores. One of my former students, my master's student is actually running for Congress, Shrina Karani in California. And she is awesome. And she, if she wins, which I am very much supporting her to do, she would replace someone with a 7% climate score in Congress. So there are lots of local and regional elections that you can get involved in that would love your help and that have a really big climate impact, um, along with supporting organizations and political parties that are doing good work that you believe in. So at work or schools, I mean, here we're actually seeing a lot of important climate action come from employee organizing and pushing their employers to have more ambitious climate goals, to actually put the policies in place to make those climate goals a reality. That's super important. I mean, basically all jobs need to be climate jobs and whatever industry you're in, wherever, whatever your skills are, whatever work you're doing, figuring out how to help push the, the industry and your company and your, your work towards climate stability is super important. So Project Drawdown has a great guide called Climate Solutions at Work that basically spells out how employees can have really powerful climate action. And that can be 
you know, in my case, it was talking with some friends and, and uh, supervising a student who, who organized a campaign basically to get our department to start flying less about four or five years ago, um, because we knew that was the biggest part of our climate footprint as, as researchers and academics. So basically finding ways to scale up uh, personal to collective action at work is also super important. Wow. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Kim, for all of those takeaway tips. I was expecting one and you gave me a whole handbook and I love it because people can really pick and choose the route that works the best for them and find their climate superpower. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for joining me, Kim. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, Laura. Thanks for your work. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Kimberly Nicholas. Like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I felt like it was a very warm conversation, one that I got a lot out of, and one of positivity. So I hope it brightened your Earth Day or brightened whatever day it is for you. Thanks again so much for hanging out. If you've stuck around, you can follow the show wherever you're listening on whatever your preferred podcast listening platform is. And like I mentioned, all my links are in the show notes. So if you like this episode, if you want to hear specific in this world of eco-conscious lifestyle, I am all ears. I am always open to suggestions. I also just really like to talk to y'all and hang out online. Thank you so, so much for tuning in, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.